Well, good morning. Uh, this morning, I've got a lot of scripture that I'm excited to share with you. Uh, in fact, I invite you as we begin this morning to open your Bibles or your cell phones or iPads uh, to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 20 is where we'll spend the most of our time. Uh, and uh, so you can put your bookmark there, but we'll be traveling all through scripture this morning as we look at God's message to us. Let's begin with a prayer uh, this morning as we open God's Word together. God, we give thanks uh, because we believe that you are a good God, even in the midst of the trouble and suffering and difficulties in our lives. God, this morning we've gotten to celebrate your son Jesus in uh, a time at the table. Uh, we've gotten to see examples of, uh, of, of people, leaders in this church like the Maloney's, God, that have set the stage and have set the foundation for years with our elders. God, we're grateful for where you brought us as a people. We're grateful for what you're doing in this place. And in this moment, God, I pray that you would do your work of speaking, that your Holy Spirit would move through this room, would, would prompt us and change us when needed, would encourage us as needed. Uh, but all above all, we would hear your voice, God, above any other voice. This morning, God, I pray you'd pour through me the gift of preaching so that Christ would be formed in our hearts. It's the name of Jesus we pray. And everyone said, Amen. Last week, if you weren't with us, we took a look at Jesus' journey toward Jerusalem. It was Act 1, and this week we're talking about Act 2. We're talking about Paul's journey toward Jerusalem. Now, it's important for you to know, if you're new to Scripture, that the book of Luke and the book of Acts is written by the same guy, Luke. He likely was a physician, and, and he followed Jesus around, and, and he tells the story uh, in, in the Gospel of Luke, but then tells the story not just of Jesus in that book, but also in the in the book of Acts, tells the story of the early church. So this morning, I want us to, to look at those two stories, to look at what Jesus did on his way to Jerusalem, as we talked about last week. And, and to begin, I just want to remind us of a passage uh, that we read last week. This is Luke chapter 9, verse 51. It says there, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, that's Jesus, Jesus resolutely set out. For Jerusalem. And so last week we talked about this, the beginning of the gospel. He's healing people. Crowds are following him. But in chapter 9 of Luke, he begins to set his face toward the cross, toward the suffering to come in Jerusalem. And the disciples struggle with that journey. They're not excited as much about the suffering Messiah, but this is the path that he set out on. Well, as we open the book of Acts, it's interesting how that same journey that Jesus went on, Paul, the apostle, went on as well. So if you have the book of Acts with you, uh, which should be there in your Bibles if you brought it all along, uh, it's in Acts chapter 20. I want to read in verse 22 uh, a similar language that Luke uses about Paul's journey. This is Paul's words, uh, again, Acts 20, verse 22. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Luke is picking up on similar language, reminding the people who are there uh, that Jesus has already been on a journey of suffering and Paul is headed to the same city on the same path. This is what we need to know and what we talked about last week is that suffering didn't just happen for Jesus on the cross. Suffering is something that happens in all of our lives at one time or another. And as followers of Jesus, we're called to pick up our cross. And so even though uh, we no longer have to die and, and, and experience condemnation, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, uh, we all have to pick up our crosses if we're going to be followers in the way of Jesus. And so Paul has his cross to bear 
as well. And what I want to say this morning, I want to say this clearly because there are a lot of places in Christian churches where it seems like there's a different message given. Suffering, if it happens in your life, is not proof that God is somehow absent from your life. Suffering isn't just the path for the Messiah. It's for anyone who follows the Messiah. And so in your life, if you're experiencing suffering, sometimes we think, well, God's not answering my prayers. He must not be alive. He must not be active. Or maybe I've done something wrong. And there are times where we experience the consequences of our sin. But suffering can also be a sign that we're actually following the right path and that suffering follows those who are righteous as well. And in the story of Paul, we see this happen. In fact, in, in, in Paul's story, in chapter 20, we read that he's heading toward Jerusalem. But this isn't the first time that Paul has been in Jerusalem. He's spent a lot of time in the city over the years. Saul was actually born in a city called Tarsus. In fact, he talks about uh, his early journey, his early years in Acts 22, beginning in verse 3. These are the words that Paul gives about his life. And Paul was later known as Paul. Early in his life, he's known as Saul. So if you hear those two words. That we're talking about the same person but a person who's been transformed. This is Acts uh, 22, verse 3. Then Paul said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city. I studied under Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison, as as the high priest and all the council can themselves testify. I even obtained letters from them to their associates in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. See, in the beginning of, of, of this set of verses, it talks about Paul being raised in Tarsus, but he soon moves to Jerusalem. And he's raised under the training and the teaching of a guy named Gamaliel, who was this important rabbi in Jerusalem during the first century. So he's being raised and groomed as this teacher who will one day be a teacher in the Jewish faith. And as he confesses in Acts 22, before Paul heads to Jerusalem at the end of his life as a victim, Paul, when he was formerly Saul, victimized others who were followers of Jesus earlier in his story. In fact, in Acts chapter 7, which we'll read a couple verses in a moment, it tells the story of a guy named Stephen. Stephen's the first Christian martyr that the book of Acts tells us about. And this guy named Paul who later journeys to Jerusalem, was in Jerusalem years before at the stoning of Stephen. In fact, this is what it says. This is Acts chapter 7, verse 57. This is the the death of Stephen, the first Christian martyr. At this, they covered their ears, and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, Stephen they're talking about, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. So Stephen's stoning is taking place in the city of Jerusalem where Jesus had died. And now just a a few years or or, or months later, we're not sure exactly of the timeline, not too long after the death and resurrection of Jesus, Stephen is now being stoned. And there's this guy named Saul who's holding people's coats and clothes so that they can go and do this work of killing this guy who's a follower of Jesus. So when Paul says in Acts chapter 20, he doesn't know what's going to come before him, what Jerusalem he's going to face there. You have to realize he has a background in the city. He knows uh, that Christians sometimes aren't safe in the city, and sometimes he's been the reason for the lack of safety that Christians have had. So listen to Paul's words again with all that in in, in your background in, in Acts chapter 20. One more time, Acts 20 verse 22, when Paul's got all this in the back of his mind, this is what it says. Now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem 
not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. So here's my question this morning. Acts chapter 7 Saul is looking over the death of uh, Stephen, the first Christian martyr. He's willing to use death to try to coerce these Christians, or maybe the Jews, not to become followers of Jesus. He uses the slavery of the fear of death that we've been talking about against the Christians. But in Acts chapter 20, he says, you know, I'm headed to the city of Jerusalem, and I know it may not turn out all that good, but all I want is for God's grace to be shown in my life. Now, how does someone transform from this religious terrorist, if we can call him that, right? Who's approving of the death of Christians. To all of a sudden becoming this person who's willing to die himself, not to kill others at this point in his life, but to die for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if that's true for Paul, that he can go that far and have that much transformation, I think we can all raise our hands and say it can happen for us, right? The Holy Spirit wants to do a work of transformation in our lives just the same. So this morning, I want to look at Paul's journey, his transformation, what happened in his life. And I want us to lay that up against our journeys. Where are you at in the midst of this transformation? I think his story will be a story of hope for you. Now, again, the cross was a deterrent, wasn't it? The cross was a deterrent for Rome to make sure that people honored Caesar. But Paul knows when he saw that he can use death as a deterrent as well for those who are Jews not to turn over to the Christian faith. So at one point in his life, he's willing to use death as this tool to try to get people or control people, manipulate people toward a certain way of belief. The stories are similar. So at one point in his life, Saul's willing to use people's fear of death against them. Later in his life, it's as if he doesn't have a fear of death in his own life. He's willing to die in order for the gospel to be shared around the world. And here's what I've learned through this series. That if you're afraid to die... People can exploit you in so many ways in your life. Like if, if you've got fear that's working in your life, think about this. You, people can play on that fear all the time, and it happens all the time in our lives. But if you get rid of the slavery of the fear of death, if you realize that Christ has defeated that fear and no longer are we slaves uh, to the fear of death, then all of a sudden it's impossible for people to exploit you in the ways they used to be able to. Let me give you an example from Paul's life. Paul writes a letter to the church at Philippi. This is the book of Philippians, chapter 1. He writes these crazy words that he couldn't have ever penned back in Acts chapter 7. But as he's being transformed, he's he's in prison when he writes these words. He's not sure what the future holds. Nero's the one who's holding him hostage in prison, and he doesn't know if he's going to get out or not. And he writes to the church at Philippi, and these are the words that he writes to that church in Philippians 1, verse 20. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. You can see Paul's transformation happening, can't you? All of a sudden at this point, he's no longer in fear of death. Now he says, if if I go on living, that's great. I I get to continue in my ministry to you. That's maybe better. But if I die, so be it, because I get to go be with, with Christ, which is actually better by far. 
Now, if you're Nero in that scene, in that situation, how frustrated are you with a prisoner like this, right? Like, what can you get Paul to do if you're Nero? He's not afraid of death. He's not afraid of any kind of punishment. Whatever comes, so be it. Praise be to God. And wouldn't we all love to be in that place in our lives that when fear uh, knocks at our door, we're all able to say, you know, it really doesn't affect me at all because I've got my life in order. I know exactly where I am in my relationship with God. I want to get to that place. I don't know about you. How about uh, when the market collapses, if at that point we could say, you know, I'm not afraid. Or when the Supreme Court makes decisions we don't agree with, uh, that we don't like, uh, I'm not afraid of what the future holds. Or when my job comes into question, I'm not afraid anymore. Or when the Longhorns lose to the Sooners, I'm I'm just not afraid anymore, right? So how does this transformation happen in Paul's life? Because if, if Saul can become Paul and he can use death in this one scene and then He's no longer afraid of death. He's actually willing to give up his life. How can we see that transformation in our own life? And this morning, I want to talk about that. I want to talk about three things that happen in Saul's life that transform him that I think have connections to our own transformation. This is Acts chapter 22. I want to read some of these verses uh, to you. It says, uh, first of all, the first thing that happens in Saul's life is Saul has an experience that changes his life. Number one, Saul has an experience that changes his life. His life. This is what it says, Acts 22, verse 6. About noon I came near Damascus, and suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I asked. I'm Jesus of Nazareth, whom you were persecuting, he replied. My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. You see, Saul knew the Scriptures. Saul was a person who studied under Gamaliel. He knew why he believed what he believed. And my guess is in his life, there may have been some things that people could have shared with him that might have changed his mind. But for most of us, we know what we believe. If we believed differently, we would believe differently, right? We know the reasons for why we believe. Some of us need some more sure footing for that. But the truth in Saul's life is it wasn't uh, all of that knowledge that came, brought him to a knowledge of Jesus Christ. It was an experience with Jesus that changed him. He was on the road to Damascus, and he has this bright light experience. And in that moment, he experiences this change that transforms all of his categories. So it wasn't an argument that got him into the kingdom of God. It was this experience with the risen Christ. When I think about my life, I wonder if my connection with God is more about an A plus B equals C kind of faith, or a faith that was handed on to me from my parents, rather than really a development of faith that came to an experience with the living God. And isn't that what we all desire? Is that we would have a, an experience with the living God so much so that we can say, Satan, it doesn't matter what you do. I had an experience with God. I know him to be alive. Some of us have had that experience, and, and we go back to that experience often. Some of us, it's, it, it's not something we can remember going back to. And, and I wonder if maybe this week, if that's a prayer we need to begin to pray is, God, would you show up in my life? Would, would, would you develop a relationship with me? I, I desire that relationship. I desire that connection. I desire to have an experience. Would you open that up to me? And I, I've never had an experience quite like Saul's experience in, in Acts 9, but I have had these moments where I, I just know God was at work, that he, he answered prayers, or I can look back on my journey. Usually I see this more in my rearview mirror than I see it out my windshield, right? I can see God's work in the past. And, and, and those are moments we need to write down. Those are experiences we need to be able to go back to, to praise Him and to thank Him and to stand on those moments when doubt begins to arise in our lives. Because Christianity is not a belief, it's a lifestyle. 
And it's nearly impossible to maintain a growing relationship with God without an experience, without a relationship with Him. Second thing in Saul's journey that transforms him is Saul, to become Paul, uh, had a mentor in his life. He had a mentor who walked beside him. This is what it says as we read on in Acts chapter 22, verse 10. What shall I do, Lord? I asked. Get up, the Lord said, and go into Damascus. There you will be told all that you have been assigned to do. My companions led me by hand into Damascus because the brilliance of the light had blinded me. And a man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. He stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment, I was able to see him. Then he said, The God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. You will be his witness to all people of what you've seen and heard. And now, what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away, calling on his name. See, Paul has an experience with Jesus, but that's not enough. The next step is God puts him into a relationship with a disciple who's further down that path than he is. And this is what concerns me about some of the Christianity that goes on in our world today. Is there, there are a lot of people that talk about they're spiritual, but they're not religious. And what they mean by that is they connect with God in nature. They connect with God by themselves. But this whole church thing is really messy, and they don't want to get involved with it. But in my experience, the only way that I've been able to grow is not by uh, anything, but by, by looking at Scripture, by growing in my life with God. But it has to happen with other mentors that have walked beside me. I cannot even name the number of people in my life that have been willing to walk beside me, show me the path of faith, who are further on that journey, who are able to say, here's some spiritual disciplines that I've walked through. I would encourage you to walk through these as well. Here's my experience with God, and hearing from them gives me hope and gives me faith about what it means to follow Him as well. Maybe this week that's for you. Maybe you've had that experience with God. Maybe that relationship's formed, but maybe the next step for you is to find a mentor, uh, someone who's further down the path maybe than, than you feel like you're at right now, and to say, let me buy you lunch. I'd really like to hear your story of how God's connected in your life and what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Maybe you see they're more patient. You see more of the fruit of the Spirit in their life. Maybe you see that they're loving people or people of mercy. And I would encourage you this week, if you haven't taken that step, find someone in this church. Find, find someone around you that you know to be a follower of Jesus and just take them out to lunch and say, I, I don't know what it means to follow Jesus fully. I don't know what my next steps are, but I think you might be a little further on this journey, would you be willing to walk beside me? And my, my guess is if they're the kind of right mentor, they'll probably say, I, well, I don't know what I'm doing either. I, I don't think I'm the one. That's when you need to say, no, you're exactly the one God's put in my life. I'd really encourage you to come alongside me. And so maybe that's it for you is you've had the experience, but maybe you need to walk with other Christians. Maybe you need a connecting point group to walk beside of others who are walking on this journey uh, as well. Uh, the third thing in Paul's life that happens is he steps into a new calling. From God. He has a mission on his life at this point. This is Acts 22 as we read on in verse 17. When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying at the temple, I fell into a trance, saw the Lord speaking to me. Quick, he said, leave Jerusalem immediately because the people here will not accept your testimony about me. Lord, I replied, these people know that I went from one synagogue to another to imprison and beat those who believe in you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Then the Lord said to me, Go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. God doesn't just leave him with an experience or a mentor. He gives Paul a new calling, a new mission. 
And you can hear Paul, part of him saying, I don't know, I, I don't know if I'm okay with this. I actually was standing there when Stephen was killed. I've got a lot of blood on my hands. I'm not sure I'm actually able to be a leader. And God says, no, I've prepared you. You are my person to go out on my mission. And I, I don't know, it's strange to me because if I were God, I would see Paul as this person who'd grown up in the Jewish faith. And I would think this would be the perfect apostle to the Jews, right? After all, he has relationships. He can share his story about showing God showing up to him through the person of Jesus on the road to Damascus. He'd be a perfect apostle to the Jews, except they might all kill him in Jerusalem, right? So he kind of sneaks out of town, and God says, no, you're my apostle to the Gentiles. And I'm sure there's a part of Paul that said, I'm not qualified for this. If they know my story and what I did in the past, I can't possibly be used. But this is something I've learned in my journey with God is God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the call. And maybe this morning right now you're feeling as if, you know, I don't, I don't think you know my story, Colin. There's this past. Paul's got a past too. Or maybe you're saying, I'm not qualified for what I sense God's doing in my life. That's the perfect opportunity for you to step into it because part of humility is stepping into things. We don't have a clue what we're doing. But God uses us and lets us know it's not your power, it's my power that gets used through you powerfully. Think about God's history, his resume of working with people. Jacob was a cheater. Peter was a, uh, had a temper. David had an affair. Noah got drunk. Jonah ran from God. Gideon was insecure. Thomas was a doubter. Sarah was impatient. Elijah was depressed. Moses stuttered. Zacchaeus was, was short, and Abraham was too old. Lazarus was dead, and he could still work with us. And God has a way of working with us when we're not enough on our own. And so sometimes when we're humble and we say, God, you can't possibly use me, it sounds like humility. But really what it is is we think that this is supposed to be us alone doing it and not God working through us. The spiritual growth that has often occurred in my life most has been when I've been most unqualified for the task God's called me on. And when I learn to work through that and he uses me, I learn to trust his power in other situations in the future. It happens best when Satan tries to convince me that I'm not enough. And when I step into those situations, God does his best working over and over again. I mean, think about this, right? Paul is a religious terrorist who writes half the New Testament. God transformed this guy Saul who actually looked over the death of Stephen and he uses him to write over half of the New Testament that we read today. If you think you can't be used, I'm here to tell you, your resume is probably not as bad as Paul's is. Most of us uh, aren't going to go through exactly what Paul did, though, let's be honest. Probably aren't going to end up on a cross, most of us in the room, if not hopefully all of us will not experience that. Uh, So what does that look like for us? What does this whole cross thing mean in 2016 for those of us who live in North America? What I would submit to you is the cross isn't just a one-time event, as I've been saying. It's something we're called a daily pickup. And this is how I think it works in our lives. At the beginning of the series, I talked about how Some of the doctors I've talked to have said Christians are actually uh, not all that much better at dying than those who aren't believers. And that was shocking to me when I heard that. And my belief is that we ought to be better than those who live without hope of eternity. But it's a journey that gets us to that point. And so I think what God allows us to do in our lives is we get to experience opportunities to experience many deaths, many crosses along the way that prepare us for our eventual death in the end. The question is, do we step through those many deaths or we, do we deny those many deaths? And those look different for each one of us, right? We grow up as kids, and we grow up with a strong ego. Our parents pass on to us that you're somebody who has self-esteem. You have worth. 
they give us trophies on every baseball team to prove we have it, right? But eventually we move past that and we learn that there's actually a tribe that is bigger than us. It's not just the world around us. We have to do chores, which means there's a family here, not just you. And then we get a job because, you know, you have to pay for the gas and the insurance and the car payment when it comes time for that. And, and then you find out there's income tax that's taken out of, I mean, you learn over the years, right, that it doesn't revolve around us, that there's more at work here. And then life goes on and we get married and marriage is like a mini death, right? Maybe that's a bad image, I don't know. Holly's not in the room, so she's safe. Don't amen me, by the way. Whoever did that, that's, that's scary. Um, but what it does is it, it, it removes us as the center of the world, doesn't it? Like we're, we're inviting someone else into our space saying, we're going to do this together. This, this isn't just about me. I'm not doing this alone. Uh, other relationships do the same thing for us. Our connecting point groups do this. We're doing this in life together. It's not just about us. Walking into a faith community is the same thing. It's easier to do it alone in some ways, but we have to do it together. Having kids is another mini death, isn't it? You realize quickly it's not about you anymore. Like if this kid's going to be sustained, all of a sudden this person's got to become more of a center of our lives. And so our selfishness gets pulled out of us a little bit more if we're doing it right. And if we're not doing it right, it's going to be hard to hang on to a marriage. It's going to be hard to be the right father and mother we need to be to our kids. And over our lives, it just happens from thing to thing. We lose a little hair and it's a mini death. We, we, uh, we walk through a job loss and it's a mini death. We, we, we lose our 401k in 2008, it's a mini death. And we either have the opportunities, moments to experience that death, to walk through it, or we have the opportunity to kind of act as if it's not a real thing and, and to deny it. Or, or some of us, we get to a point in life, and it's like we start over trying to get through the pleasure mill all over again, trying to act as if we're kids when we really should be full-grown, mature disciples. And these opportunities, each and every one of them are opportunities for us to take up our cross, to experience these many deaths. And the more we do that, the less selfish we are. The more we do that, the more we're able to let go in the end, the better we are at the final task of giving up our lives for the pursuit of what God's called us to. The people I notice who, who live best are the people who've actually thought about their deaths already. They're people who've already come to the point they're willing to give up. They see everything as a gift and they don't have to hold on to anything for their self-worth. I think Paul experienced these many deaths. In fact, he talks about this in 2 Corinthians. There's a couple of passages I want to close with this morning that talk about the journey Paul was on and how it wasn't always easy for him either. He endured so much. This is what he talks about. This is 2 Corinthians 11, verse 24. Just listen to what Paul went through in his lifetime. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one, a many death. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger uh, from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I've labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak? I do not feel weak. Who is led into sin? And I do not inwardly burn. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. What are we boasting in, church? The things that show our weakness? And as much as Paul wanted God to remove these things from him, I can imagine he offered a lot of prayers up. God, would you not let me get stoned again? Like, usually you die before the first one. I don't want to live through another one of those. Or really, that many shipwrecks, God? Is this what, 
Is this really what you're doing? How many of you felt like you're out on the sea praying to God and he doesn't seem to show up? And you begin to question, maybe I've done something wrong or maybe God's mad at me. And I think the life of Paul reminds us that just because you're experiencing suffering or difficulty doesn't mean you're not on the right track with God. And then he prays for this thorn in the flesh. You remember this in 2 Corinthians 12? God, would you remove this thorn in the flesh? We don't know exactly what it is, but, but listen to what he, how he talks about this thorn, this struggle that God won't get rid of in his life. This is 2 Corinthians 12, verse 8. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and in insults and hardships in persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Church, these, these stories about Paul, this transformation from Saul who uses death for an agenda to becoming someone who is willing to give up his life for the sake of the gospel, it's proof that if we go through troubles and trials, it doesn't mean that God's absent. He knows what we're experiencing. We're going to talk about this next week with the cross. He's, he's been there. He knows the temptations we face. And God didn't remove all those from him as much as he would have wanted him to. And in our lives, we experience the same thing, don't we? There's hardship and there's trouble and, and, and there's unanswered prayers. And we wonder, God, what could you have in this? But sometimes it's through those experiences that we grow most, isn't it? Maybe this morning you need an experience with God. Your relationship's grown cold and it doesn't feel as if anything more than you're just walking through the rituals. So maybe you need to pray this week that God would show up in a, a special way. Or maybe this morning you need a mentor to walk beside you. Because you want to see more transformation and you see people that seem to be further along the journey. Call them up this week. I'd love nothing more than dozens of those lunches to happen because of people in this community calling one another. Or maybe, maybe you need a mission. Because that's what Paul needed. And not that he felt qualified to do it, but to realize that it's when you're most unqualified that God can use you because it's in weakness that you're made strong. That he shows up. His grace is sufficient for you. As we close today, uh, let me say a prayer. I want to invite you into one of those three things. Find a way to step into an experience with God. Pray for that. Step into relationship. Find a mentor. Find a mission. Let's pray together. God, thanks for this. Uh, this wonderful day, God, this story of Paul, this reminder, the difficulty doesn't mean you're absent. It means sometimes that you're most present and you're walking beside us. And so, God, today, for those who need an experience with you, I pray you would show up, that we would open ourselves to see you alive and working. For those of us who need a mentor today, God, would you step beside us to lead uh, us through others, God? And for those of us who need a mission, God, would you qualify us as we step into it and not before? Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.